was this little boy, and he loved, loved, loved coming to church, and he was so excited to come. He loved coming to children's church and singing songs and doing all those things. And But one day he, got, he was sick. He was sick, and he couldn't come. And so he stayed home with his mom, and the boy and his dad had to stay home um, because he was all contagious and gross, you know. And so um, he, you know, waited all day long and came home. His sister came home, and um, he asked, he said, so what happened to church today? What happened to church? And uh, his sister said, well, um, Jesus came, and people waved branches to honor him as their king. And the boy's face just dropped. He said, the one Sunday I'm sick, and Jesus shows up at church. Right? <laughs> well, go have fun with your friends uh, as you learn about Palm Sunday. Uh, we love you very, very much, and thank you for helping us worship today. Well, Jesus may not be riding down the aisle on a donkey, but the spirit of our resurrected Lord is surely among us today. Is he not? Well, join with me today to turn to John chapter 12, verse 12. We're going to read our text right off the bat today and then jump into um, our talk about that. John chapter 12, verse 12, and it says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, my name is Stephanie Lobdell, and this is my 35th Palm Sunday. I have never missed an opportunity to wave those leafy branches except that one time in college where we went camping and I didn't realize it was Palm Sunday and I was devastated to discover that I had missed it. It's like, what is this about? My mom wasn't there to tell me what to do. So anyway, as a child, I love that celebratory nature of the day, you know, getting to participate in the service and getting to wave the wild branches without getting scolded. And always inevitably, I would cut my fingers on those little spindly things because they're kind of sharp because I'd ding around with them and wrap them around my finger and I would always cut myself. But as an adult, the celebration of Palm Sunday has left me kind of increasingly confused perhaps because if you have ever been to church on any Palm Sunday in the history of the universe, you have heard the same thing preached every time, right? The people cheered for Jesus and they waved their branches because they thought he was king, come to squash the Romans, right? They shouted, Hosanna, save us, and they waved their palms as a representation of the military and political victory that they felt certain Jesus would usher in. And so with joy and enthusiasm, they celebrated his entrance into Jerusalem. So assured that this time, this time, their nation and the power would be restored. And every single Palm uh, Service sermon tells you that's all wrong, right? Their expectations were totally skewed, colored by their own desires and their fears and their agenda and their disappointment with Jesus' subsequent failure to be the king they demanded incited them to change their cries from Hosanna to crucify him. From blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel, to we have no king but Caesar. Their expectations were wildly off base and they did not handle the disappointment well, to say the least. Now, it is always kind of shocking when our expectations are pulled out from under us like a rug on a slick floor. Unmet expectations often produce in us 
profound disappointment, and it's extremely hard to shake, you know? That disappointment, even from small things, you know, like your evening plans fall through or whatever, and that disappointment and the accompanying negative emotions are like sticky dough. It clings, right? And the higher the expectation and the more emotionally weighty the implications of those expectations, the harder the crash when they fall through, right? The bigger the the sorrow when it doesn't work out. Now, I've been reading the word, the, the writing of um, a writer and a Christian thinker. Named, his name is Jonathan Merritt on this topic, and more specifically about expectations and disappointment with God. And he asks, why do we have this like visceral experience when we're disappointed and our expectations are not met? From the crowds who turned on Jesus in a matter of days, from us who, when things don't go as planned and the future seems shady at best, we respond so negatively. Now, Merritt, this, this writer, he turned to science for clarity. He learned that when we have expectations for things, something good in the future, the dopamine in our brain, it's like the pleasure chemical, it's like the happy juice, okay, like the happy juice in our brain. When we have expectations, we have hope, and that dopamine kind of gets to start rising. We start to feel these positive emotions, right? And just even like thinking about that thing coming to fruition, we're like, ooh, we're feeling good, right? And wonder of wonders, our expectations are met, and whoosh, we get like a double whammy. He calls it a double shot of dopamine, even better than espresso, I'm told, right? But here's the thing. Expectations are not always met. People fail us. Jobs fall through. Medical crises happen, the treatment doesn't work, our kid doesn't return to the Lord on our timeline, and then the pastors move to Ohio. When our expectations are not met, not only do we not get that fun little dopamine hit, we actually crash, and we crash hard from the hope that has already been built inside of us for expectations. So not only, the article says, not only do you not get what you wanted, but you also have the displeasure of having been wrong bummer. And having built up this excitement and this expectation for Jesus, this this raising people from the dead kind of miracle worker, the crowds are riding high on the dopamine juices, right? And here he comes. He's riding on a donkey. Don't we have like a prophecy for that? Whoop, there goes the dopamine. Oh my word, they're waving palm branches. Pretty sure that means he's a political leader. Whoop, there goes the dopamine, right? And they're waving. I'm so excited. So they're like high as kites, on their brains, okay? And so when a week later, Jesus refuses to do battle with the religious leaders and he instead eschews violence and doesn't even resist his arrest, when Jesus refuses to defend himself and explain the situation to Pilate, when he refuses to call down fire from heaven on the oppressors, the crowds, man, they crash and they crash hard that double whammy of disappointment and humiliation and having been so wrong. And so no wonder they turn on Jesus with these shouts of crucify him because disappointment hurts, but anger is a much easier emotion to navigate. So let's just be enraged, right? And so Palm Sunday and Holy Week and the Passion, this is one big adventure in disappointment and these radically inaccurate expectations. And so as an adult on Palm Sunday, here's my conundrum. And hear me out for just a second. Why do we act this out every year? Why do we keep acting out this fantastical moment of misunderstanding? 
uh, filled expectations and just general obliviousness to what God was doing among them. Why do we keep doing this with the palm branches? Now, as you know, the church we were at before was in rural Missouri, and the second year we were there, it was in northwest Missouri, the second year we were there, um, we found out that this town had a small, albeit very interesting role in the Civil War. It was an old town, and so the, the courthouse had been erected long you know, before our time, obviously in the 1800s, and apparently it had been raided by, like, marauding rogue Confederate soldiers or something. I don't even remember what side they were on. Anyway, so there was this little interesting Civil War tidbit, right? And so they decided they were going to have a Civil War reenactment. Now, have you ever been to one of those? I had not ever been. And silly girl that I am, I actually thought to myself, well, you know what, this is going to be weird having all these northern soldiers in a battle because nobody's going to be choosing to be on the losing side in this reenactment. I mean, come on. I was wrong. Um, if you're from the South or if you know anyone from the South or you have passed in the general vicinity of the South, you know how foolish my assumptions truly were, right? In fact, I was so wrong, I think it's safe to say there were probably more Confederate reenactors than Yankee. And Pastor Tommy wanted me to make sure to tell you that it was so dumb because everyone was shooting guns and no one would fake die. No one wanted to die. They wanted to keep fighting. And so people were like getting shot, like point blank range. And they're like, I'm good. You missed. You know, and they just kept going. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. So, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Now, the South has a very distinct culture and a very specific interpretation of the history, particularly Civil War history. And I'm not going to pretend to understand that or go into that. But I think one thing is clear to me, and I think we can all agree on this. The South did not win the war. Is this accurate? We are not the Confederate United States, okay? No amount of reenactments is going to change the outcome, okay? And thank goodness. I've wondered the same about Palm Sunday. Jesus wasn't king the way they expected. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He did not banish the Jewish leaders oppressing the people. He did not regain autonomy of the nation or reclaim territory from the occupiers. So why do we keep reenacting this? Why do we wave palms and sing Hosanna? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Is there something to be gained from acting this out? Remembering this moment year after year? What, are, what exactly are we celebrating? What, what are we remembering? Now, sometimes certain things only make sense backwards. Do you remember the very first time you watched Star Wars and finding out at the end of the movie that Darth Vader is Luke's father? And <laughs> the whole movie, you got to watch, start it over, start it over, right? Because everything now makes sense in this brand new way, right? Or if you were into that movie a long time ago, Sixth Sense, and at the end you find out, the psychologist is dead. And you're like, watch the movie again. Because it only makes sense when you know where it's going, right? With brand new eyes, you can finally see and understand what's been happening this whole time. And so too on Palm Sunday, it makes no sense if you approach it head on and you only see this brief window of time, this one small snippet of history when a guy hopped on a donkey and was hailed as king. It doesn't make sense because the guy and the donkey turned out not to be a king at all, at least not the king in the brochure. Now, Palm Sunday only makes sense in light of what comes after it. 
then all the pieces fall into place. Now, in John's account of the Palm Sunday, its triumphal entry, immediately following his entry, he's approached by these two Greeks. And they describe him as Greeks, which mean either they are foreigners who have converted to Judaism, or they're just straight-up pagans, and they're just interested and want to know who this Jesus is. Like, I heard this guy raise somebody from the dead. I feel like I should talk to him, right? And instead of engaging him in dialogue, he instead makes this unexpected declaration. He says this, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And those who love their lives will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Unless a grain of wheat dies... Those who hate their life will keep it. What kind of king talk is this, right? And Jesus continues. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And you're thinking lifted up, like exalted and honored and set on a throne or lifted up on the rough wood of a cross in shame and humiliation. Now, soon after this, Jesus' public ministry ends and he enters into the upper room with his disciples. And you know what happens. The king, the one just hailed as king gets down and kneels and he washes the feet of his followers and later in the evening when his accusers finally come and the disciple Peter raises up his sword to fight them in violence Jesus stays his hand he says put away your put the sword back in its sheath am I not to drink the cup the father has given me and so the king is whipped and scourged and tortured, and a crown of gold, not of gold, but of thorns, is thrust upon him, and this mocking robe of purple is placed on his bleeding back, and this murderous rioter is set free while Jesus is condemned to this death and this heinous death of death on a cross. And so weakened by this abuse, Jesus staggers to Golgotha where he is nailed to the cross, and it's a cross bearing a title, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. A final sarcastic jab. What kind of king is this? Who meets violence, not with violence, but instead takes the violence into himself for the sake of love. Who is this king who has no ego to defend, no position to protect, but instead humbles himself, kneels and washes the feet of his followers? Who is this king? who does not do battle with the earthly powers that be on their terms, tearing down thrones, but instead breaks the chains of sin and death, dealing death, the death blow itself. Death, you will die because of this king. Who is this king? Who, though being in the very form of God, did require equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself and taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Some things only make sense backwards. And with eyes enlightened by the Spirit, the Spirit who reminds us and teaches and corrects and clarifies, we finally see the King of Palm Sunday clearly. We wave branches and we shout Hosanna, not in anticipation of our agenda coming to fruition, but in anticipation of God's agenda. 
to redeem all of creation, breaking in to the world among us. And so now when you go back and you look at that text again, at that story, you see it with new eyes. When you hear those words, blessed is the one who comes. Blessed is the one who comes to us. Humble and poor that we are, sin-wrecked and marked by death. Blessed is the one who comes to us in the name of the Lord. And they sing out, do not be afraid, daughters and sons of Zion. Look, your king is coming. Do not be afraid. The same words were spoken to Abraham in his doubt, to Hagar in her terror, to Elizabeth in her devastation, to Mary in her trepidation. Do not fear always pre is a precursor to divine revelation. Do not fear. Pay attention. I am revealing myself to you. And this time, God's revelation of God's self comes on the back of a donkey. Do not fear. This is your God, this humble man on the donkey. Do not fear. This is your God, this man who surrendered his rights and kneels in service. Do not fear. This is your God who rejects violence and instead takes it into himself for us and for our salvation, for love to undermine the powers and that are at work in the world. Do not fear. This is your God, the Prince of Peace, who reunites us both with the divine and with one another, who heals the rift between us and our creator, but also the rift between us. This is our king. Oh, but it wasn't the king they craved. One who would follow their agenda and bring justice the way they wanted it to come. Crash. How often? Do I criticize that crowd with its flagrantly unfaithful, even idolatrous expectations? How often do I roll my eyes at their fickleness, their ability to hail Jesus as king, and with barely a breath turn and condemn and claim Caesar as king? I criticize. And yet, how often do I impose my vision and my expectations on God? How often am I myself fickle, faithful one minute when I think I understand what God's doing and then thrashing in rebellion against what I did not choose and what does not feel comfortable? How often do my hosannas morph into crucify hymns when the path is not what I would have chosen? How often do I reject the king of heaven and demand Caesar instead? When the disappointment crashes in from unmet expectations. When God does not act the way we hoped God would act, Jonathan Merritt says again, he says, we are finally then able open to be open to receive what he calls the gift of disillusionment. Now, that does not sound like a good gift. I do not want that gift, right? But Barbara Brown Taylor, the preacher, says, in disillusionment we find what is not true, and we are set free to seek what is. If we dare to turn away from the God who was supposed to be in order to seek the God who is. Disillusionment, losing the comforting warmth of the lies, like God's will is always easy and comfortable and feels good. 
or the lie that if I'm faithful and obedient, hard and painful things won't happen. When we crawl out of that deception, we discover something and someone far better. The eternal, persistently present, constant, stubbornly faithful God who comes. Blessed is the one who comes, who comes to us now and always. I don't want to be that crowd. So blinded by my own desires and my own expectations and agenda that I miss the salvific work of God right here breaking out before my eyes. I want to be like Simeon or Anna. Do you remember them? The story of Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph come into the temple all all fearful, and they have baby Jesus and these two doves for their sacrifice, and nobody notices them. They're just some poor people from Nazareth. And here comes Simeon, and he looks at the baby, and he sees Jesus for who he is, the salvation of God. And while the crowds are bustling around, oblivious to this poor couple and their son, Simeon had eyes to see, and then Anna She comes, she's been a prophet in that temple for years. She comes and looks into the face of her Redeemer. And she knows he is here for her and for the world. I want to have eyes to see like they do. I want to have eyes to see like Mary. Remember the sister of Martha and Lazarus who, when everybody else is basking in the wonder of Jesus' miraculous raising Lazarus from the dead, here comes Mary kneeling at Jesus' feet in worship and paradoxically somehow anointing him as king and preparing him for burial. I want to have eyes to see what God is doing. And by the grace of God and by the gift of the Spirit, we can. For as we still our hearts and as we uncomfortably, as we reject those comfortable deceptions of our DIY God project that we form in our own image, and we quiet those chattering voices that are clamoring for our attention and our devotion and our energies, and instead we listen. The Spirit speaks. The Spirit reminds. The Spirit teaches. The Spirit enlightens. And the Spirit finally will cast those scales from our eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts that have turned to stone. Only then can we see and understand and join in what God is doing. Only then can we be free of our idolatrous expectations and disappointments and receive the gift of disillusionment. That strange, uncomfortable gift that enables us to allow God to be who God will be and do what God will do so we can join him there. And so, Enlightened by the Spirit, we wave our branches and we shout Hosanna. We do not participate in a dead reenactment of some ancient misunderstanding. But with Spirit-illuminated vision, with divine clarity, we declare, Hosanna, save us. Save us from ourselves, from our sin, from our cold, hard hearts. Save us from death, that old enemy that clamors after us. Save us from the evil powers that are at work around us and save us from the temptation to join them. Save us 
from the lie that we are the measure of righteousness and that my desires are justified simply because I desire them. Save us from our idolatrous expectations and our angry disappointment. Save us. Ascend the throne of our hearts and make yourself at home in us. God, in God's mercy, does not give us the king we want, a king of might and power, a king of violence and coercion. That expectation must die, and not without pain. But God does not give us the king we want, but he has given us the king we need. The king we need is that humble man on the donkey, the one who fears us not only or not merely from political foes, but from the chains of sin and death. The king we need is not one who will impose his will with violent force, but is willing to suffer violence for the sake of love. The king we need is the prince of peace who reconciles us with God and with one another. The king we need is the one who, and I will say this again and again, who though he was in the form of God, did not require, uh, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's good news to embrace, is it not? But it is also good news to enact. Because remember what Jesus said to those Greeks who approached him after the triumphal entry? He says, those who love their life are going to lose it, but those who hate their lives in this world will keep it for eternal life. And whoever serves me must follow me. We follow this king in service to one another. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we follow him in forgiving those who have wronged us, even when they're not sorry. As Jesus cried out from the cross of his oppressors, Father, forgive them. We follow him in forsaking our rights, giving voice to the poor and oppressed, as Jesus welcomed each one to the table of fellowship. We follow this king in loving persistently and stubbornly and doggedly, even in the face of rejection, as Jesus loved us unto death. Lord Jesus, you are not the king we wanted, but you are the king we needed. And so to you, Jesus, we do cry, Hosanna, save us. Unshackle our hearts that we might love you and one another more faithfully, that we might serve you and one another more faithfully, that we might reflect you more faithfully. You are our King. You are Lord. We do not claim to perfectly understand, but we will seek to perfectly obey. So would you pour out your Spirit upon us, your church, that we might see you and what you're doing in and around us more clearly. We declare Hosanna. Come, King Jesus. And we look forward to the day when at your name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. 
Would you stand to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place not seeking after the king you want, but embracing and serving and obeying the king you need. May God empower us with spirit-wide open eyes to see what God is doing and to join him there. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed.